It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. We, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. 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 Welcome back to another episode of Mic'd Up, an unapologetic, low-country-based podcast from the Charleston Activist Network. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden, and today's show is dedicated to environmentalism. Specifically, we talk about environmentalism here in Charleston and why it's so white. (laughs) And so I invited my friend Cyrus Buffum to join me in this conversation. We even get to talking about Ernest Everett Just. Uh, He is a famed biologist. He's a product of Maryville. Uh, He's also the son of Mary Just, who was one of the founders of Maryville. So we get into that. Um, So just listening to this conversation between my friend Cyrus and I, and also stay tuned for once the conversation concludes, I'm going to add a little bit more audio, some background on E.E. Just, so you get to know his work and his legacy. All right. So enjoy this episode. Take care. All right. Hey, what's up, friend? Friend, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hello, everybody. Uh, uh, my name is Cyrus Buffum, and I am, uh, I guess I bear several titles, one of which is Commercial Oysterman, another of which is a uh, friend of Gadsden Creek. And um, I'm here, I'm very excited to have a conversation with, with Mika, you today about uh, the environmental space here in Charleston. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, there's nobody um, in my life that I'd want to speak to more than you. Um, you and I met what a couple years. I'm horrible with chronology. Um, a couple years ago. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I met you um, as you were advocating for this creek, um, that creek that I had no idea was in existence. Um, tell us about this creek. Sure. And one, mind you, that that uh, shares yeah. a, a namesake of uh, your own name. So Gadsden Creek. Yes. Um, so, you know, the, the, uh, G- Gadsden Creek is a historic urban, uh, Creek, a tidally influenced Creek on the West side of the Charleston peninsula. Uh, it's a tributary of the Ashley river. And it's a, it's a Creek that has not, um, uh, been, something that that many people are fully aware of and it's and it's been that way for several decades due to neglect due to policies uh, that the city adopted over the years um, but it's one that still exists is still very much so alive meaning it's serving ecological functions and values uh, and it's one with an incredibly rich history tied to uh, the the adjacent community called the Gaston green community and so I uh, originally got uh, became aware of the creek just by uh, nature of proximity. I lived uh, not far from the creek for almost 10 years um, a- after college and slowly s- learned about it through just walks and, and visualizing or seeing uh, marsh species in this kind of urban environment, downtown Charleston, and exploring more. And then that led me to an exploration of its history. And, uh, and, and that, you know, that, of course, led led me down this road that I've been on to really begin better understanding the intersectionality of, of environmental issues and, and racial issues specifically in Charleston. But I think that it's, it's been a very good case study to, to uh, then kind of conclude more macro, more general uh, things about that intersectionality on a, on a regional and, and perhaps even on a national level. 
Right. And I think um, I think it's important to have your voice here because what I've seen you do when in your exploration of this creek, in your discovery of this creek, I've seen you. You you are the first person to teach me how to use the city's archive, our our archives that we have available to us at the library or digitally. What's been you know saved? Um, you know, you're the first person to really teach me hands on how to use that as a tool to get to know to 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 understand the history of certain things and it's a Gaston Creek to me was a mystery that you just kind of you're still un, un, uh, unraveling we're still solving yeah. the mystery of how this creek what it was what it is currently and 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 we'll soon find out what its fate will be but I I wanted you and I know those who've been listening to Mic'd Up already had you know have heard excuse me have heard your voice on previous episodes um, I just want I wanted you to start off with the Creek's um, history because I just want to catch up any new listeners um, on that. Sure. But I do want to back up and like if you could. So you introduce yourself as a commercial oysterman, and of course you're one of the OG FOGCs. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted we wanted you know you're you're the one of the the leaders or the, the people who created the Friends of Gas and Creek. But um, I just want to ask a quick question sure. with a with um. Are you an environmentalist? How do you how do you define yourself in that space in terms of advocating for for uh, green spaces and the environment here? Yeah, great, great question. I mean, that four years ago, I would have answered uh, immediately with 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 an affirmation that yes, one hundred percent. And and I think that from a from a, a purely kind of uh, um, specific kind of extracting the definition of environmentalism, I would still say yes. However, there's an asterisk that exists today and not just today, today, but kind of as of late, perhaps over the past few years, um, which accounts for kind of my own personal awakening and, and discovery of the, the intersectionality that I referenced earlier, is that environmentalism today, and, and frankly, for a, a very long time now, uh, has become in my opinion, a, a pretty baggaged term. Uh, it's been, mm-hmm. I think, though it has just and very objective origins, what it is today or what it is perceived to be today is one of asymmetry and, and kind of subjective in, intentions rather than objective intentions. Uh, and and, it's, and it's, it's kind of been amassing all of this baggage over the years. And, and I, so I'm excited to, to kind of chat about what that, some of that baggage is and what my read on it is and how perhaps it happened. And um, so, so I guess to answer your question, you know, I, and, and frankly being inspired by you, I tend to describe myself more so now uh, as, as an activist, as an advocate, uh, because there's, um, though I think that I would have always identified as that, I think I would have felt a bit less comfortable wearing that badge and more comfortable with kind of the environmentalist badge because historically, and, and even now, when one says one is an environmentalist, it presents this very kind of clear good guys versus bad guys identity. Yeah. You know, the bad guys yeah. are the polluters, the bad guys are the yeah. developers and such. And we we environmentalists are fighting against the bad guys. And as I've slowly learned, 
reality is very different than these dogmatic kind of binaries that exist. And so that's, you know, that's been yeah, very you, interesting. You know, um, you just made me think of something I haven't thought of before. Um, I think I may have felt it or just, but I think you just gave me some, some language to use there. Um, I think a lot of, that's why you see this space occupied by a lot of white folk too. I think um, it's safe. It feels mm-hmm. yes. safe. It yeah. feels like a way to, a way to, uh, to, to weigh into certain matters, but not be um, labeled anything controversial exactly. Exactly. per se. But, but what we learned and what I learned through your personal journey um, and also the, the current, you know, conversations that we've all been, been privy to, or we've taken part in. Um, I've learned that, that uh, environmentalism is like a Trojan horse that really can bring in a lot of uh, racism, um, a lot of, Oh, just, just really harsh policies. Like it, 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 things that present on its face as something benign and, 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 you know, something that's just wholesome and right. you find out, whoa, this, this policy is about to displace yeah. this black community over yeah. here or this, you know, this indigenous stronghold. And so, um, you know, I think that's what I, I love that you're, you made that evolution, not to say that any environmentalists um, are going to have that problem, but I, it's interesting to hear your evolution. I wanted to ask you this. Um, oh, I'm going to bounce all over the place. Please. I already see right now. <laughs> I had I had two cosmic brownies before, the, so the sugar is just kicking es- in. I had two espressos. I, you know what I feel like right now, Mika? Is I, I feel <laughs> like in the morning when there are these daily like morning podcasts that come out, be it, be it the daily or uh, you know uh-huh. any any number of these podcasts, and they were. It's obvious if they're being distributed uh at like six in the morning for listeners they're recorded at like midnight and that's what even though it's mm-hmm. only 7 30 right now i don't know if i can disclose mm-hmm. the fact this is pre-recorded yeah but yeah, yeah, I, yeah i feel i still feel like i had to kind of train a little bit for like late night recording that's gonna like go live in the morning even though the sun's still up i still needed a couple <laughs> couple shots of espresso to kind of prep so you and, me, you and me both prep. <laughs> no thank you I, that's what i want my conversations to be like that i want to yeah knock down that wall this is not pretentious at all so yeah guys we run on sugar that's and right. espresso <laughs> no okay so i'm about that, that you gave me permission to bounce around now so um i mentioned before that i learned through you um, you use the archive and you use the archive to kind of uncover the story of Gazin Creek. But let's, be- let's talk about another story you uncovered. Yeah. Um, you, you uncover, cause someone reached out to me today about Maryville. Okay. Um, and, and it, so when you were talking, I, I started thinking about, um, who was an environmentalist and, mm. and who does that, be- you know, who does those titles belong to? Yes. And you discovered a very prominent figure from Maryville. And if you could, yeah, e- e- go ahead and can you tell the story of those and and tell people where Maryville is if you could. Okay, so I, I'm I'm it's funny I'm looking at my notes that I prepared for this <laughs> conversation and the the one of the final points I wanted to make was the story of E. Just. So I'm glad that it's getting yes. getting Yay. front attention uh, in this conversation. So uh, Ernest Everett Just was, and I'm going to butcher some of the actual facts, but born I believe early or excuse me late 19th century in Maryville uh which is a community kind of a, a waterside community um African historically African-American community on the west side of the Ashley River and what we refer to as West Ashley today 
uh, it was a community, and, and Mika, you might want to interject in more of the, the, mm -hmm. the language here, but it was a community post-Reconstruction or even perhaps during Reconstruction mm -hmm. that uh, recently uh, freed enslaved Africans uh, and African-Americans mm -hmm settled this unincorporated section of at, you know, what we call West Ashley to kind of create an independent, self-sustaining community. Uh, and the, the name Maryville bears its, its, uh, its name from, there were two Marys, uh, one of whom was this gentleman, E.E. E. Just's mother, um, mm -hmm. Mary, Mary Just, I think her name was longer yep. than that. But E.E. Um, yeah. e. Just, fascinating story. He was uh, obviously a... a um, a very curious individual. Uh, the the Maryville community was not unlike the Gadsden Green community historically. It was this kind of small enclave of of kind of independent, self sustaining African American uh, residents of of these kind of pockets of communities in the city of Charleston. Um, the story of Maryville. I, and, I, and yeah, real quick, real quick. So if you're in Charleston, if you're not from Charleston, it's an area that we con now consider west of the Ashley, also Maryville. I don't know if you're about to get to it, but Maryville was a thriving African-American enclave. Like you said, much like what Gadsden Green used to be, that area that is currently Gadsden Green is, um, but the city revoked its annex. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm sure you were going to get to that, yeah. but I just wanted to, so west of the Ashley, which is, we call it West Ashley here in right. Charleston. Right. Please, and, please continue. Okay. Yeah. And, and so just for context, again, Ashley being the Ashley River and, and why this mm -hmm. is important and why I appreciate Mickey you bringing him up is that the trajectory that this individual at the time that he came to be, he being E. Just, um, the trajectory that he took was one that it, it, it exemplifies this notion of kind of be overcoming the odds. And, uh, you know, I, I say overcoming, I'm, I know for, for certain there were many uh, obstacles still in his way throughout his life, but the arc that he took was, he um, was was raised in Charleston, in Maryville, and eventually, I believe, during high school years, went off to school in New England. Uh, and then from there, I believe it was Dartmouth or Howard. Yeah, Dartmouth. Yeah. It's, oh, which one did he go first? He, I got the um, his bio pulled up. Okay, good. So it looks like he went. It looks like Howard is listed first. Okay. Wait, wait, no, 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 wait, Dartmouth. Alma mater is listed as Dartmouth and then University of Chicago. Yes. Okay. So uh, yeah, we're not here. Yeah, so, so you're right. Uh, you're, so, okay. So the the, yeah. the fascinating connection is he eventually began going down this avenue, uh, and the dates again. I think you know very much Jim Crow era dates yeah. of South Carolina, and so he uh, was was schooled high. Oh, so real quick, real quick, in New England. Yeah. Real quick, so he was born in 1883, if that helps okay. people too. So that's yeah. like following Reconstruction um, or in the midst of – when was Reconstruction? So it was after, of course, the Emancipation Proclamation. But, ended. Right. So, right. And he died in 1941. Right. So just for context. I'm sorry. Keep no, no, going. no. That's perfect. So so the, mm -hmm. the fascinating thing, he eventually became this prominent PhD um, marine biologist, this researcher. He spent every single summer at um, uh, MBL, the Marine Biological Laboratory, which was mm -hmm. an extension of the University of Chicago at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute on Cape Cod, uh, pursuing studies and research into, I think, embryology and how a certain aquatic species, how they reproduce and, and something having to do with eggs, this incredible research, um, not only for the time, but also considering the circumstances from which he came. 
And I can't mm-hmm. help, you know, I'm taking some liberties here, but I can't help but to, to consider the role in which uh, his childhood vicinity to the Ashley River and to the tidal creeks of, of the Ashley River and to the tidal creeks of Charleston and the marsh, et cetera, influenced or enabled his curiosity and enriched his curiosities and his interest in this field of study, which then uh, led him down this path of being a, a, a frankly, world-renowned uh, scientist. He was also uh, right. founder of the, um, the Omega um, Fraternity at, yeah. at Howard while he was teaching, I believe. Again, fact check all and, this stuff, but um, yeah, no, no, no. I'll, I'll get the fraternity. Yeah. So, like, how'd you find out about him? I I swear it was you that said. That I think I think <laughs> you led me down the Maryville rabbit hole, and then from that rabbit yeah. hole, there was like an offshoot of. I think maybe you posted something, perhaps uh, mm-hmm. that it was like Mary Just's son became a prominent yeah. scientist, and I like latched onto that. I'm yeah. like, wait, science? Yeah. <laughs> Because that's uh, on that's on the historical marker. Like I yeah. definitely was lifting up Mary Mary Just yes. Mary Matthews Just yes. absolutely. And so yeah. then it led, led me down this rabbit hole, and then I couldn't help and still can't help but to see the the path that E. e. Just took in in his life, in his professional life, kind of academically and through research, and the the likely and I you know dare I say kind of inevitable role that that access to nature at a young age provided him. Uh, had he been disconnected from the natural world, and this is a you know this is an exercise in you know in speculation, which perhaps is you know not fair, but if he had not had access to to a tidal creek, to the marsh, to the species that that populate that kind of ecosystem, would he have pursued and entertained the the path that he mm-hmm. did, and would he have unleashed the potential that existed in him that Fortunately for all of us, we as, you know, as members of, of the kind of global society have benefited from yeah. greatly, but it, you know, yeah. was it only because of this initial kind of opportunity to engage with the water, engage with nature in the ways that he did growing up in Maryville? And Matt, can, can you imagine like if more African-American exactly. boys and girls, like, yeah, you live in Charleston, you have no... Mm-hmm no choice but to have a connection with the water one way or another right. if it's if it's not like literally with coming in contact with it it's the food mm-hmm. um you know it's, it's it's your parents perhaps their livelihood um it's so much and as one of the motivating factors of why I I returned home I just fell in love with a place that wasn't landlocked mm. and you know I have a fast I have a complicated relationship with water because my parents' bodies were prohibited from going to to beaches and and bathing, and you and I had that conversation yeah. too about you know black beaches and black recreational spaces um, back in that time. But um, yeah, and so I grew up kind of, but I grew up like near the Jersey Shore too, which is right. like <laughs> so like so like, but but I had a complicated relationship. Like I can't swim, but I love the water. I love being. I love going to the beach. I love um, being in a pool. Um, but it's just it's complicated that I, I wanted you to lift up, um, you know, E.E. E. Just, Ernest Everett, Ernest Everett Just, because I do want folks to imagine um, black people, black scholarship occupying these spaces that have been long, like for have been just mostly white, including environmentalism. And, and even though E.E. Uh, e. Just was an, a biologist and a scholar, um, I brought him up because 
when you think of these green spaces, when you think of of connection with nature, you don't think of a black pioneer right. in a place like Charleston. And so, again, these recent times right now that we're living in, um, I want to, I, I kind of want to know, like, knowing what you know about the history of Gaston Creek and what you found, and this history of of EE Just. Like, what has it inspired you now? To, how has it inspired your leadership in these environmental spaces, sure. environmentalist spaces? Yeah, great question. Uh, for me, uh, having been, and just for context and, and kind of transparency mm-hmm. for the listeners, I, uh, before becoming a commercial oysterman, which is, is seasonal just due to the wild oyster season, uh, I mm-hmm. was the founder, and I guess still am the founder, um, founder mm-hmm. and, and executive director of an organization in Charleston called Charleston Waterkeeper, whose mission uh, was and, 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 and is uh, to protect the quality of Charleston's waterways, the harbor, the rivers, the creeks, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, so my mm-hmm. perspective that I'll kind of touch on in response to your question it mm-hmm. has been informed both by my participation in uh, what I think we, you and I at least, can agree to kind of reference as the kind of the environmental industry or the environmental movement, uh, advocacy movement in Charleston. And then also uh, somewhat overlapped with that, my then exploration of this issue uh, of Gadsden Creek and kind of the lessons that I've learned from that. And so, the, you know, the, what, whatever insights I have kind of come from those two primary experiences. And then also from, you know, from a lot of reading and, and studying history in order to better understand context um, of environmentalism and and ways in which environmentalism today uh, could or do perpetuate inequities and perpetuate uh, power dynamics of white supremacy over uh, marginalization of, of black and, and colored uh, populations. And so for me, you know, I'll be hopefully the first, uh, I'm, mm-hmm. I'll be the first to acknowledge my own naivete in, in the environmental space, uh, and I'll you know I'll certainly acknowledge my own uh, role in enabling some of the systems that exist, certainly in Charleston, to ensure or to continue to feed the disproportionality of of kind of access to nature, access to a, a healthy environment that favors largely white, largely privileged populations and disproportionately um, unfavors uh, communities of color. And, and so, but, but again, that's been, you know, uh, the, the real scholarship on that has, has kind of intensely begun um, or, or taken place over the past just couple of few years. And so I still have a lot to learn, but I feel yeah. that I've, I've learned a lot and, and because of the unique experiences that I've had, I've been able to kind of reflect on, um, on the general role of environment, environmentalism mm-hmm. in Charleston. And that has, that has yielded fa- really interesting takeaways for me. <laughs> um, some mm-hmm. very disparaging, uh, disparaging takeaways, uh, that, you know, that make me realize, and, and you touched on this and make me kind of mm-hmm. want to, beat the drum and, and, and insist upon a different way of us carrying the quote unquote environmental flag mm-hmm. in this city. Um, right. because it's right. not the way right. that we're doing it isn't working for everyone w- at best. Would you, at, yeah, go ahead. Y- yeah. No. Would you say that, um, many of these organizations or any of them, do you think that they have a racial justice, 
uh, or a race analysis in their approach to problem solving? I I, I doubt it. Uh, you know, from a mm. from a from a you know really constructive analytical uh, standpoint, I doubt it. Now, the the interesting mm-hmm. thing, and when you posed the question to me before mm-hmm. our conversation here about mm-hmm. kind of how can Charleston's environmental space uh, rise mm-hmm. to this occasion, the occasion that we as, as a nation are going through, um, fortunately, albeit one far too late and perhaps not mm-hmm. enough, but um, it made me about kind of really begin questioning the whole space of environmentalism and is it rooted in just intents? And when you look at environmental law, when you look at kind of the purity of environmentalism, it's this idea that everybody has equal access to the sea, the air, the running water through, uh, you know, through a, through a landmass, and that no one has the right to impair those things or prevent any individual from accessing those things. Pollution is a, is a very real way mm-hmm. in which one, mm-hmm. i.e. the polluter, uh, limits or prohibits free and fair use of that resource by, by the commons, mm-hmm. by the public. And so if that's kind of the origin of quote unquote environmentalism from a philosophical standpoint, I have to believe that environmentalism is is just, right? I mean you mentioned mm-hmm. and, and rightfully so that yeah. everything in our lives comes from the environment, from nature, the food we you know, air we breathe, etc. Mm-hmm. The problem that I see that has played out very specifically in Charleston is kind of the partitioned institutionalization mm-hmm. of environmentalism. Meaning mm-hmm. Over, over time, uh, groups have emerged uh, that have come to advocate for a very particular segment of the environment and also to advocate on behalf of a very particular segment of the commons, the, the public, right, all of our citizens. Mm-hmm. And so what has happened over, let's call it decades, and I'll speak specifically to Charleston, is what mm-hmm. has emerged is a is kind of a limited uh, um, field of players, of environmental organizations, of environmentalists, et cetera, that are inevitably, just by nature of capacity and, 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 and you know, all of these other kind of limits, are ultimately advocating for a very specific segment of the environment and, frankly, are only right, advocating yeah. on behalf of a very specific segment of the population. And, right, and also, and also a very specific uh, set of interests. Yes, all, um, often, and I don't want to oversimplify um, certain organizations' um, position or their their work because some of them have, while they don't have a race analysis, and I would even say they don't have a, a class analysis. Um, right. They, some of them do quality work. However, it usually is work that supports and protects the white establishment here um, and white wealth, preserve white wealth. And also a lot of the, even like from the Dutch dialogues, conversations, a lot of the city planning, while it did, there were, there were moments where the public was engaged at some level to weigh in and participate. It still wasn't participatory in a way that reflected like what black and Gullah Geechee folk Mm -hmm. might want to see or what, how they'd like to see the city look. Um, you know, I would love to see like maybe the Long Sherman 
um, you know, folks engage specifically. Absolutely. Um, that's a very powerful and black union here. But beyond the politics of that, would it would be great to have men whose livelihoods depend on waterways kind of just kind of help steer some of that conversation. And we just like those spaces just do not look like working class everyday right. folk. Right. And it don't look like the brown and black folk that live here or the indigenous folk. Right. Um, you know, and I, and, and even if it's, I hate to say, even if it's ceremonial or, or not ceremonial, even if it was, um, I guess like just surfacey, but it, it would be, it's so bad here that it would be refreshing to see, um, even like a, like a performative gesture toward, Hey, we want to honor, you know, these, these indigenous folks or these gullah folks, but even though I, I want substance, I, I'm just sure. saying it would be refreshing to even act like if they feigned interest in, history here that wasn't just about civil war or the american revolution (laughs) right right yeah i i kind of wanted i think you said a lot about you helped characterize these spaces very well i kind of want to make sure that um that we kind of round the conversation out though Mm -hmm. cyrus and tell me what you would want um if if you're if you are talking directly and I want you to talk directly to white folks who care about the environment, who care about quality of life for people, sure. what advice would you give white folk who are entering into this fight here in Charleston? So um, uh, the first thing I would say is that we exist, all of us who are living in Charleston right now, inside of an existing culture that largely we have inherited and one that we are either enabling and and perpetuating or one that we are actively working to change. And as it relates to kind of the environmental culture in Charleston, I firmly believe that it is one that disproportionately uh, benefits white Charlestonians and uh, Mm -hmm. takes from uh, or is benefiting white Charlestonians at the expense of uh, black and Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. communities and communities of color. And so if we're looking at kind of larger goals here, I think that we, uh, and, and this isn't a direct kind of action item, but more generally to understand where the action items need to be targeted, I think the goal needs to be a shift in our collective culture of Charleston as it relates to the environment and what does the environment mean and 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 uh, on behalf of, um, you know, who are we advocating on behalf of? And so I would say to the, to those working in positions of leadership in in the environmental space, I would say uh, scrutinize the matrix through which you are evaluating your environmental priorities. Um, and I think the thing that has gotten us into the disproportionality that exists in Charleston in terms of access to water, land, et cetera, is that these matrices that uh, environmental advocates look through are far too simple. They do not account for the disparities in class. They do not account for necessarily disparities in in race. Um, mm-hmm. And therefore, the programs that come out of and the agendas that come out of these organizations that are influenced by a far too simplistic matrix um, of, of an analysis are not holistic enough to ensure that, that they aren't perpetuating these, these kind of toxic forces and, and systems. And so... What I would say is, I, I, the other thing, though, that's, I think, critical to note is in Charleston, part of the culture that exists in Charleston is one that has deputized environmental organizations 
um, mm. to be the authority on what is and isn't deserving of public attention and city official uh, engagement and involvement. And that to me is one of the more dangerous things that I think we need to address immediately. And what I mean by that is in Charleston over the decades, I've referenced there being, let's call it at least, you know, no more than a half dozen organizations that kind of represent and have been deputized, either given that mm -hmm. authority or taken that authority, um, been been kind of deputized to serve as the kind of the judge and jury of, of what is worth preserving, what mm -hmm. is worth protecting in terms of the environment. Right. And when you look at they're they're gatekeepers correct yes gatekeepers. yes exactly mm -hmm. right and and the trouble mm -hmm. with that is you are we collectively have allowed mm -hmm. that to happen and what that does is it puts this um kind of unbridled unilateral um uh, uh, uh power it gives that kind of power to these organizations that at the end of the day are private organizations they aren't public i mean they are public entities to some degree but right. they uh, they have a particular agenda and they have particular stakeholders, which are largely um, uh, composed of their donors. And I, I know when I was with Waterkeeper, the majority of our, of, of our revenues came from high net worth individuals mm -hmm. and, and events. And so when I look honestly at our stakeholders, though our mission um, may have been justly uh, driven by kind of the collective whole of Charleston residents, at the end of the day, you kind of respond and prioritize the things that are going to allow you to continue to keep the organization's doors open, meaning what is deemed to be an important issue according to your supporters, your donors. And the right. trouble with that, that as you so beautifully and accurately referred to as the uh, industrial, the nonprofit industrial complex, the trouble with that is you're taking an issue that uh, such as in environmental uh, justice and, and issues pertaining to the environment and rather than holding our elected officials accountable to ensure that that access to nature access to clean and healthy environment is had by all the elected officials take a pass on that obligation and they again deputize these kind of power brokers these gatekeepers to mm -hmm. figure that stuff out for for everyone, but the unfortunate reality is that they don't serve everyone. They don't represent everyone. Are they even looking through everyone's lenses? The answer is no. Um, and so I think we need to a shift the the culture of 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 our elected officials, kind of looking to these gatekeepers for the answer. I think that is laziness, and we we need to hold ourselves accountable. Right. We need to hold our elected officials accountable. Um, so that's one. I and, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. But no, no, no. I wanted to ask. It made me think. So what do you think? So I'm Sally from Ohio. I'm coming into Charleston. Mm -hmm. I am I am attracted to the big I'm not gonna name drop because sure. Lord knows right now I don't want that. <laughs> you mentioned our nonprofit. Right. I don't want that. But I'm Sally. I'm from Ohio. Woo woo. Um Cleveland in the house. And I'm here and I am a tree hugger and I'm not being, I'm not using that as a pejorative either, but like, I want to just, just support these groups that are doing quote unquote, good work, preserving the environment here in this coastal town. Um, what would you tell a Sally coming into town? 
uh, yeah. seeing this these big behemoths uh, these these deputized right. um uh you know very moneyed very powerful institutions how would you uh, encourage Sally to interact with that I get you know if, if Sally is is hell bent on uh disrupting uh problematic mm-hmm. systems yeah I would start there mm-hmm. like if Sally's just mm-hmm. wanting to kind of protect a certain way of life and quality of life that she wants to enjoy here in the low country I don't know that there's much persuading that I or anyone else can do to mm-hmm. kind of tell her not to prioritize uh, a beautification project or some other well-intended. Yeah. I mean, we're not talking about persuasion, but like what would the, what advice would you give Sally? She know, came would, asking you for your input. Yeah, I would say, you know, to me, it starts with looking at disparities that exist in a given community uh, as it relates, since we're talking about the environment, as it relates to the environment. And so, how how does one do that? I would begin looking at, uh, I mean, f- food, right? Food is a is a huge, mm-hmm. um, uh, huge variable here. Food deserts, uh, access to healthy food, et cetera. All of that can be tied back to access to land, and um, the ability to mm-hmm. you know to produce and have access to healthy food. Then I would look at other ways of of uh, of sustenance. So. Um, you know, are, are there access issues in Charleston, access to the water? Meaning, is it mm-hmm. only the wealthy and, uh, and privileged, largely white citizens of Charleston who, who uh, have the greatest chances of engaging with the water in a, in a sustainable way, right? One of the things that I love, absolutely love, because it, it is, it's um, illustrious of the, these disparities, is, is seeing individuals uh, fishing from public bridges, fishing mm-hmm. from uh, kind of, uh, there, there's a spot on the north side of the, mm-hmm. um, the Cooper Bridge where you look down and yeah. you can see individuals fishing. And um, to me, it's, it's indicative of a larger issue, which is access to water. So I would, I would look at kind of the disparities and then work backwards from there and and ask, mm. are there and not necessarily not necessarily run to an organization, yeah. but like immerse themselves in the community. Like like you live close to Gaston Green, right. you were able to observe through conversation with neighbors, walks. You you were able to kind of just observe, even though I know you were leading an organization and probably also you know active in certain circles. But you immerse yourself in the community, right? And you, yeah, you learn more about it first, as opposed to just. Cause I think that's even like, even since the George Floyd murder, everyone ran to my site or ran to my platform because I think they thought I was another BLM, like sure. adjacent. And and while I do do some activists, I, I am, I do consider myself an activist. Um, that's not what I do. Like I'm not here. I'm not an organization that you can support per se. People are looking for like those quick fixes. Like right. if I support this organization, I know that that's it. Exactly. I guess, I, you know, so, so you're telling people, it ain't going to be a quick fix. No. And, and, and you need to, yeah, yeah. You're right. And Go you've, got, you, you've got to engage with the community that you care about. And and mm-hmm. I would challenge everyone, myself included, to question mm-hmm. uh, the how we're defining that term of community, right? It, is it the mm-hmm. uh, monolithic kind of confinement mm-hmm. of our subdivision or our block or whatever, or is it, do we want our our impact and our participation to be more holistic and begin? Right, because ho- you know what? Because 
yeah, and I didn't mean to cut you off, no, but no, no. you brought, I remember you mentioned that before because that's how developers tried to trap us. Like, well, the community in Gas and Green isn't as vocal. Right. And we're like, no, we're the community. Right. And I, I live in Charleston County. I don't live in back to green, but I'm the community. I care about it. Right. And we we do have to decolonize that that um that even that those boundaries, these artificial boundaries, mm-hmm. if you give a fuck, if you <laughs> give a damn, I curse on my I can curse. But if you give a damn about people, now I'm not saying, you know, white folk need to be parading into the projects and like, you know, right. but I am saying that if you care and you have something, you have a tool in your toolbox that can help stave off West Edge or any other developer, by all means do it sure. right yeah. um yeah I, I think you're right i think community is not these rigid terms right. um you know i, I want to i'm looking at the clock right quick so i want to i want to finish but i want to ask um and do not give me three <laughs> not give me three <laughs> i'm hugging you from yeah. like from, from my apartment <laughs> give me give me <laughs> either a book or a podcast that you think people mm. Um, need to read or listen to. You could do lists. You could do a okay. book and a podcast. Okay. 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 Man, uh, you know me too well. <laughs> other than mic'd up, yeah, mic'd right. up with Mika Gadsden. Other than that, <laughs> right? Yeah. Other than that, I don't think you know that's the sole that's thing <laughs> on my list. I would say so. I I just listened to a, a really, and I know you and I have talked about this, but I just got mm-hmm. finished listening to a a really fascinating podcast called The City. I believe it's is it mm-hmm, called mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. produced. USA Today uh, season one, which is it features this illegal dump in um, uh, what's the town in Chicago or the section of Chicago? It's long. It's the Lawndale community. Yeah. So yeah, my tw- my twin brother used to live in that area. But so the so the city. Okay, give a quick synopsis. So, quick synopsis: <laughs> there's this illegal dump. Uh, uh, you know, building materials that were dumped there. Other mm-hmm. refuse, kind of dust, all, all this nasty stuff dumped on. Mm-hmm adjacent to a an african-american community uh just outside Mm -hmm. or as part of chicago um maybe in the Mm -hmm. 80s or 90s and such and it follows that storyline through to present day and shows how uh these these disparities of in this case kind of this environmental nuisance right it it led to Mm -hmm. dust on people's homes asthmatic uh symptoms in young children growing up adjacent to this dump Mm -hmm. how the 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 powers that be were more inclined to respond to those kinds of nuisances uh, when they were affecting white and affluent communities and were less. Okay. And let me stop you right there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to stop you right there. And for those listening, that's called environmental racism. And so if if you do your research in on on environmentalist issues in urban spaces or in black or in even some indigenous spaces, you know that most of these issues are visited upon mm-hmm. people of color like when you know when you look at the statistics and it says that more black people live closer to either landfills or power plants and so on and so forth that's not an accident so he's talking about a tragedy that's visited upon uh, an, a population of black people okay now exactly. hop to the book okay go ahead well, to the book and, and then yep. i will say that that that, that nope. story that story helps, that's to, not frame, a, okay. helps to frame the gap <laughs> creek issue because okay. you know the parallels are just striking so the book all right the book recommendation <laughs> would be um i mean one that really opened my eyes i love you <laughs> i love you too I love the, you. The okay. opened my eyes first and foremost to uh a lot of these these policies was uh the color of law 
Now that's predominantly mm. that predominantly pertains to zoning and kind of real estate. No, racial covenants, right? Racial covenants, yeah. But mm. but it's not a far fetch. Uh, it's not it's not a, a giant leap to go then from what the kind of the the spirit of that book and that the thesis being made in that book is and what has happened uh, and what continues to be perpetuated by these um, these forces here in Charleston and um, you know and it all comes down to uh, this disproportionate access to opportunity, whether that opportunity be uh, clean and um, you know and, and healthy environment, whether that be opportunity to own property, whether that oppor- you know whatever however one defines opportunity, there are ways in which these these disparities that exist today have been engineered, and the color of law gave me a lot of kind of insight into the very intentional policies that have been enacted throughout our country that have led to the, the gross inequities today and, and throughout our culture. Yeah, I think those are really good suggestions. The city and uh, Color of Law, I'm going to include the links to both of those resources, along with some more information on uh, Ernest Everest, excuse me, I always say this a little wrong, <laughs> Ernest Everett Just of Maryville. Um, I'm going to include links to all of those things that Cyrus mentioned. And then of course, I'm going to link um, more information where you can find more information about Friends of Gadsden Creek um, and where you can help us wage this way, you know, just help us with this battle. Like we're just trying to put the city on notice, put development uh, developers on notice and really um, bring about some sort, some semblance of justice for the folks who live in Back to Green, a.k.a. Gadsden Green and the, and the projects over there in that community, not just the housing projects, but that extended community. But um, thank you so much, Cyrus. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I always enjoy a conversation with you, Mika. Thank you for, for reaching out. Ernest Everett Just was a pioneering African-American biologist, academic, and science writer. Just's primary legacy is his recognition of the fundamental role of the cell surface in the development of organisms. In his work within marine biology, cytology, and parthenogenesis, he advocated the study of whole cells under normal conditions, rather than simply breaking them apart in a laboratory setting. Ernest Everett Just was born in South Carolina to Charles Jr. and Mary Matthews Just on August 14, 1883. His father and grandfather, Charles Sr., were builders. When Ernest was four years old, both his father and grandfather died. Just's mother became the sole supporter of Just, his younger brother, and his younger sister. Mary Matthews Just taught at an African-American school in Charleston to support her family. During the summer, she worked in the phosphate mines on James Island. Noticing that there was much vacant land near the island, Mary persuaded several black families to move there to farm. The town they founded, now incorporated in the West Ashley area of Charleston, was eventually named Maryville in her honor.